The Bible, uh, as we've been looking at these various uh, weeks in a series called King of Grace, King of Grace, and just taking time to look in Matthew's Gospel regarding uh, just those things surrounding who Jesus is, reminders that not just the history lesson, not just the chronological running through what took place here and there and who this person was or that person, but trying to, as maybe we saw here in this uh, video, trying to connect the dots of how the significance of his life and birth and his character and who he is, how that fits into the larger scope of what the gospel is all about, what the gospel is and what the truth of the gospel is. And so this morning as we're talking about the King of Grace, I'm reminded that uh, what it all comes down to it it all comes down to it concerning the gospel, the gospel of Christmas. And this morning, uh, in a moment, we're going to read, but uh, let me make, make a few preparatory comments before we read our passage. We're going to read Matthew 1, 18 through 21, but we're going to focus on verse 21 this morning, primarily as our main passage. Jesus Christ is the only person who ever chose to be born. That's what Paul reminds us in Philippians. If you uh, look on the screen there, have this mind among yourselves, Paul writes, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though, talking about Christ, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He didn't become less God, he just chose to take on humanity. Uh, he, but he emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of of a servant, and here being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was the only person who ever chose to be born, and he was also the only person who ever chose to die. Now you may say, but what about people that commit suicide? They choose when, not whether or not they will die. Jesus chose to be born, and Jesus chose to die. Important distinction. It says that becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ, who never needed to be born or die, chose those things on our behalf for the gospel's sake, to redeem us. He died deliberately. He was born, gave his life on purpose. And when we talk about the gospel, the gospel is all, no pun intended, all wrapped up in the Christmas story of what this is all about. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God unto what? Salvation. The gospel is the power, it's the dunamis, it's the dynamite. J.I. Packer, some of you may be familiar with that name, who wrote probably the, uh, a great book called Knowing God, and uh, in his book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, those are kind of those things, well, if God is sovereign, why evangelize, why pray? He, he helps us understand that in that little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and he says, a little thumbnail sketch of the gospel, the gospel is a message about God. God is holy. God is righteous. The gospel message is about Christ. He sent His Son to die 
to redeem us. The gospel message is about sin. It was sin that separated us. It was sin that caused the separation, that uh, 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 separated us from this holy God, this relationship of our Creator. And it's about, the gospel is about faith and repentance. The gospel. So this morning, if we would uh, stand and I'm going to read, you can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. I'm reading from the ESV, your version may be a little different, but we'll, we'll all land in the same place, the same truth. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, we talked about that uh, a few weeks back, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Skip ahead there. Uh, But as he considered these things, actually, am I? Yeah. Yes, sorry. Uh, That's what happens when you go from the screen to your Bible. I should. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from who? The Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 21. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we have your holy word to, that allows you to speak to us this morning. Lord, without your word to speak to us today, Lord, we would be, uh, Lord, we would be a troubled and hopeless people, but you speak to us with clarity and truth through this word that you've given to us. Open our minds and our hearts. May the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. amen. All right, you may be seated. There's a short, that verse 21 is where I want us to center in our time this morning. It's a short verse, but it's a verse, uh, no pun intended, that is pregnant with wonderful, rich truth concerning the Christian message, the gospel. And this morning, I want us to break that verse down, that single verse down into three different ways as we look and consider the promise. These are just just a little thumbnail sketch in that verse, the promise that was made. Secondly, we're going to look at the person that is magnified. And third, the purpose of his mission. Let's focus on the first part of this, and that is the promise that was made, and that is that she will give birth to a son. Promises are made all the time. You ever had somebody make a promise to you? When I was uh, working on this message, it's funny what comes to your mind, but I remember as a kid my dad promising me, he's in heaven now, so he's off the hook, but He promised me that when I turned 12 years of age, I was going to get a set of golf clubs. Uh, Never happened. Uh, Lots of reasons, I guess, in there. But of all the things, it's funny what comes to your mind. I didn't hold that against him. I don't, you know, I don't need to, I don't hope I don't have to go through therapy, maybe for something else, but certainly not that. Uh, I might have to, but he promised me that. And I remember somebody said, yeah, I meant to do. Well, eventually... When he passed away, I have his golf club. So maybe that was the scheme, the whole 
the whole time. But promises are made all the time. But God, when he makes a promise, he keeps his promise. It may not be the time that you think it ought to be. It may not be the way that you think it ought to be. But God keeps his promise. The Bible reminds us in Numbers 23, 19, that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he uh, said, and he, will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make good? Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, talking about the coming of Christ, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Now, what was the main promise related to this gospel message? Well, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3, and I have it on the screen there, and it was the promise that God made at the darkest moment in Bible history, next to probably, again, the, the crucifixion, but there in the beginning, God had provided all that mankind, humankind needed, male and female. Jesus, do you realize that Jesus affirms a literal account of Adam and Eve. Remember when Jesus said that God created man and woman, what God has brought together, let no man separate. Jesus affirms man and woman, not only their historical creation, but the fact that marriage is between a man and a woman. It doesn't matter what the state of Florida affirms or doesn't affirm. God says that that's what the biblical standard is, and we should not be ashamed or shy away from that. But in Genesis chapter 3, at the moment when God's judgment came upon mankind, and I put in verse 14, just to, it'll be familiar uh, to your, your hearing, when it says, the Lord God said to the serpent in that moment, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now verse 15 is what I want us to pay attention to. God said, I will put enmity or hostility, separation between you, he's talking to Satan, and the woman, and between your, Satan, his offspring, and her offspring, which would be ultimately the Messiah that would come. He, the Messiah, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God promised a Redeemer. God promised a Messiah. He promised one that would come and crush the head of that serpent, Satan. He would come to bring victory. He would come to bring victory and vindicate not only the name of God, but redeem those that God has given to him. That's the promise that God has given, the gospel message. Believe it or not, that's uh, in many ways considered the first message or the first highlight of previews of coming attractions. You know, when you go to a movie and you sit through 20 minutes of previews and then you find out the previews are better than the movie. But uh, this is a preview of a coming attraction of what God is going to do. Believe it or not, God was not caught off guard when man failed to live in obedience to God's law. God was not running around trying to figure out, hey, get those plan B's out, get the, let's figure out what we're going to do. The Bible says in Revelation, it speaks about Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the earth was ever laid. The sovereignty of God means that God is in complete control. He's not at the wits of what we do or don't do. What might seem to be a setback is only a setup to the purposes 
of God. That's when we talk about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God was in full operation. And so right there, God gave the first gospel indicator that one would be sent, one would be given that we, of course, know as Jesus. This is affirmed by Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14. In the uh, ESV, it reads, Therefore the Lord himself, speaking again, is consistent with the prophets, what God promised, what his promise back in Genesis. It was all developed through the prophets. And even in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The prophets, they were taking all the data of, of the history, uh, and, and, and God was continuing to speak and developing that there would be one that would come who would be this head crusher of the devil, the one who would come and bring victory, the one who would come and be a redeemer. The prophets foretold that. And of course, remember what Paul said in Galatians 4.4. 4. Paul said, and by the word of the Lord, says, but when the fullness of time had come, a great phrase packed with a lot of meaning, when the fullness of time, that means that God sent Jesus at the exact moment, at the exact time, not one second later or earlier, he was sent and brought forth at the right time, at the exact time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It's interesting when you consider the historical timing of Jesus' birth. Uh, from a religious sense, the people of the, the Jewish people, God had prepared them through their history. Remember, the, what was the one recurring problem that the Jewish people had time and time again? In fact, it, was, it resulted in their captivity and losing the land that God had given and losing the temple with their propensity. When they went into the, or were getting ready to go into the land that Moses was uh, there and he was giving that word in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he warned them time and time again that when you go into the land, be careful that you don't get drawn in and attracted by the idols of your neighbors. They were always being sucked in by idolatry. They wanted to kind of have a form of Judaism, but they wanted to add the idols of Baal. That was always a recurring problem until ultimately God took his people and he, and he just kind of put them in exile in Babylon. And you know what happened through the years? And by the time we fast forward and come, we come to the birth of Christ, you know what we find? Israel doesn't have an idol problem anymore. Now, they got other issues. But during that time, you know, sometimes suffering and hardship will kind of break you of the stuff that nothing else can. And so we find that God was preparing this nation during this 300 years between the time when the Old Testament ended and we see John the Baptist coming on the scene. God was still at work. Sometimes we call that 300 years of silence. It doesn't mean that God was absent. It doesn't mean that God wasn't working. It just means that behind the scenes that God was operating, but there was not a prophetic word. There were not prophets and judges and those men that God used in the Old Testament that we see on the scene. God just kind of put it on pause and he was working. It was during that 300 year period before John the Baptist first came on the scene and announced, repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That was during that time that not only was the nation of Israel preparing as a country, 
But it was during that time that the Old Testament, under Ezra, that the books of the Old Testament were, were kind of finalized in a way that they said, these are the books that we believe God has inspired. That was done during that period. Also, the synagogue. The synagogue is the model that we kind of, the church was developed as far as our order. That was developed during that period of time. Not only was the religious life being prepared, but also the political life was being prepared. Uh, Rome, uh, one of the things that Rome did that was a great advantage in the spreading of the gospel, they did it primarily so their military, military troops could travel from one city to the other, but they developed a highway system. And that connected all these outlying areas that was a great benefit when Paul and his companion and others began to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was developed just in the fullness of, at this time that the gospel could go around the world. Uh, there was also cultural preparation. 350 years before the birth of Christ, Alexander the Great, great conqueror. Well, one of the things that Alexander the Great did was he made everybody learn Greek. He was a lover of Greek art, language, philosophy, everything. Well, you know what the advantage of that was? That created a unified language throughout the known world in that period of time. What's the big deal? 280 years before Jesus was born, something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. What's the big deal? The big deal is this, is that the Old Testament, the prophecies, all those things were not just confined, confined to people that could know Hebrew. It was now translated in Greek and that everybody could read it. Everybody could have access, access to it. So when Paul began to preach, they understood they had copies of the Greek Old Testament. Why is that a big deal? Because that meant when he began to teach about Christ and the prophetical record, they had something they could read and, and learn the Word of God. What are we saying? We're saying that when the fullness of time had come, God sent Christ at just the right time in history. But one of the things I find really interesting and fascinating talking about Rome is that at the coming of Christ, there was this uh, ruler by the name of Caesar Augustus, and he was the one who was in power, and he ordered that there be a census taken. He wanted to find out everybody in his kingdom because they were not only concerned about who was in the kingdom, but they were also interested in the taxation system. And this pagan king, Caesar Augustus, in the sovereignty of God, he ordered a census to be taken. And what's interesting is, is that he was a pawn in the purposes of God, of what God was doing. The reason that's a big deal is because this edict required everyone to go to their hometown in order to be registered. Do you remember that story with Mary and Joseph? Well, guess what? That meant that a pregnant woman and her husband made a historic journey to Bethlehem because that was where the prophecy said the Messiah would be born. And, he was this, and this, so the Virgin Mary, Joseph, Jesus were guided by the sovereignty of God to the exact place prophesied in the Old Testament. In the fullness of time. This was not just some happenstance thing. This was all under the operation of an all-knowing and all-wise God. God keeps His promise. Secondly, 
in our passage. Same verse. Notice the person that is magnified. And you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, that was somewhat of a common name. I think a lot of times people or moms would name their boy that name in anticipation, maybe in honor of the one that was coming, maybe thinking that maybe my child uh, would be this one. Uh, Joshua, Yeshua, the name of Jesus, which is Greek, means Jehovah saves. Naming, that that was a common name. But it wasn't common because that name was meant for one person that would be the one that God has sent, that would be the name that would be given above all names. Remember the song, Jesus is the sweetest name I know, and he's just the same as his lovely name. There's something about the name of Jesus. Why is it? that? Why is that the choice profanity with so many people? Huh? I mean, really, just think about it. If you are in a, somebody curse and use Hitler, use Osama bin Laden, use Muhammad, use Buddha. But why is it that name? I believe it's because Satan knows what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why that name is so hated. That's why that name is so despised. And people despise it in our culture. The apostles affirm that there was something about this name in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when it reads that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's one name. There's one way. Jesus himself said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a way. He's not a truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says this. These are his words. That no one comes to the Father except through me. People hate that. People despise that. That's bigotry. That's selectivity. That No, you take it up with Christ. He said those words. He said, no one, without exception, comes to God except through me. The Bible is full of so many wonderful names about Christ. Six, over 670 names and titles concerning the person of Christ, advocate, alpha and omega, bishop of your souls, briding morning star, chosen of God, consolation of Israel, the door of the sheep, excellent, faithful and true, gift of God, holy one, the truth, the word of God, zeal of the Lord host. We can go on and on and on. Take a name of Christ, meditate on it every day, contemplate who Jesus is. We're talking about the gospel of Christmas. And you dissect and take Jesus out of Christmas, you have nothing but a holiday for Coles and Macy's and Steinmart, and that's it. That's all you have. And listen, our culture's already there. If we as the people of God can't have 
a biblical understanding of what this season, this day, what this is all about, then who else will? Who else will defend God's truth in a pagan culture? Who else will do that? I love Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. We sing it. We, we read it a lot at this time of year when it speaks about Jesus being wonderful counselor. The NIV doesn't put a comma there as we often, it means he's, the, he's not just named a wonderful and then counselor. He's wonderful counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. That means he has all wisdom. You need an answer. Jesus is your source. The Bible says that he's the mighty God, this little baby born in the manger, those wise men, those kings, how many ever there were, they worshipped him. They would be committing blasphemy if they worshipped anyone other than God himself. Even those pagan kings recognize that this baby is God and is worthy of worship. Colossians 1 says, for by him, Christ, all things were created. Jehovah's Witnesses can't do anything with that because they don't believe Jesus Christ pre-existed. But the Bible says that by Him, Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created. Now here it is. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We sang about the peace of God. He is our peace. People's peace at this time of year is rattled, is disturbed. He is the Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been made near." By the blood of Christ, for he himself, he himself is our peace who has made both one. You remember what those angelic hosts cried out? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Do we need some peace in our world? Our world is being shaken, probably like never before. Things are, things are, are getting a little uh, uh, rough. But guess what? God is still alive and in control. Just as He controlled history and every single event related to bringing forth Jesus at just the right time and moment, He is bringing forth Jesus again. Jesus will return at just the right moment. One, not one day late, not one day earlier. This same Jesus, that angel told those disciples that you saw a sin, this same Jesus, not Reverend Moon, not some spirit child, this same Jesus you saw taken up, that same Jesus in bodily form will one day return and put his feet on the Mount of Olives once again. You say, when, that's going, when is that going to happen? I don't know. God knows. That's good enough for me. Don't get your theology from novels and charts. Get your Bible theology from the Word of God. And where the Bible is silent, stop. Don't speculate. People love to sell books and make movies. All right, I better move on. Let's look at the third thing. The purpose of his mission. The Bible says that he had a purpose. 
He had a purpose in his mission. It says that she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, Jehovah saves. Now look at this. Because, because he will save his people from their sins. Not that he's going to try. Not that he hopes. He's going to give it his best shot. No, that's affirming something that actually happened. He will save his people from their sins. Purpose mattered in Jesus' life. Purpose matters in our life. One of the best-selling books in the evangelical world, The Purpose-Driven Life. People are drawn. They want to know, what's my purpose? What's my meaning? What's my... uh, uh, Thank you. I saw the water, so I knew you weren't coming to pull me out of the pulpit. He's a good man. I appreciate Robert. He helped me with my, he and Terry helped me this week. Someone said, maybe it was John Maxwell, said, He who aims at nothing will always hit it. Jesus knew what he came to do. That's what the writer of Hebrews reminds us. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Who with joy, with joy, that was set before him, that cross. It wasn't, we get a little confused that maybe Jesus is the great miracle worker. And he did miracles. He was a great teacher. No greater teacher. He was a healer. That's what his ministry was all about. The Bible says that the healing miracles were really just signs to authenticate of who he said he was, that he was the Son of God. Some people see in Jesus a political figure, a political zealot. They want to try to read in all sorts of political meaning. But Jesus understood his purpose. Look in John chapter 12, verse 27. I think I have it on the screen. Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this what? Purpose I have come to this hour. And that was as Jesus was beginning to prepare his disciples as he moved towards Calvary. He said, for this purpose I have come. The purpose to be killed, to be uh, put on that cross for this purpose I have come. Jesus said in John 18, 37, when he told Pilate, he said to him, or Pilate said to Jesus, so you're a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That was right before he was going to be put on the cross. He said that for this purpose, this is why I'm here. Things do not get out of control. Mr. Pilate, you can't do anything that God has not foreordained and allowed you to do. I'm not here at your mercy. Pilate was kind of, you remember if you read the various gospel accounts, it's like, you know, Pilate is like, hey, don't you know who you're talking to? I've got the ability to set you free. You don't have any ability except that which God has purposed to give you, Mr. Pilate. That's it. Hebrews, well, we'll skip that. Let's go to this last one in John. Jesus said in John 17 and 18, for this reason, for this reason the Father loves me 
Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one, no one, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord, of my own will. He said, I have authority to lay it down. Talking about, remember I said Jesus is the only person ever born who chose to live, to, to be born and chose to, be, to die. He said, I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This I have received from my Father. Let's break this verse down. It says that, says that he will save. He will save. What does that mean? It means that the pledge, the pledge is that those whom Christ purposed to save will be saved. It's not one more and it's not one less. God did not send Jesus to run a fool's errand. Jesus, it says at the very beginning... He will accomplish something. Something actually will happen and be accomplished by His crucifixion. The Redeemer's death actually saves His people as it was meant to do. It actually atoned. It actually accomplished. It was a determined uh, crucifixion. And here it is. The testimony of the Word of God is that all whom Christ died for will be saved. My Bible teaches there's not going to be any empty seats around that banqueting table. Oh, I wonder what happened. I wonder what happened. Every person that the Father had given Christ will be in heaven without exception. That's the testimony of the Word of God. You may not understand it. Well, I don't understand electricity. It doesn't keep me from not walking in the dark. We need to apply ourselves to what God has said. And we need to apply ourselves to the truth that God will save His people. Look in your Bibles. Always a danger of putting too much stuff on the screen because people get lazy and don't open their Bibles. So I'm going to have you open your Bible. We still use Bibles here, right? We, we, that's, that's all right. And if you got it on your phone or if you got it transmitted to your brain or whatever it is, then just open what you got there and look at John chapter 10. I saw a guy this week had one of those, uh, maybe somebody here has one of those, uh, those watches that have all that on there. And uh, to me, that's more like, you know, something that would hinder me to have that uh, on me. I'd never go anywhere that's without Sherry wanting to know, when are you going to come home? Where are you going to, what are you doing? But look with me in John chapter 10. Look at some scriptures here. They're not new. They're familiar. We're talking about Jesus will save his people from their sin. Look at verse 7, John 10. So Jesus said again, He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He talks about being the door of the sheep. Here are those sheep. He says in verse 11, He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look down at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, those that are given to Him by the providence of God. Look down at verse 27. Let's pick it up at verse 
uh, 24, it talks about how the Jews gathered around him and began to you know, ask him questions. And he says in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe. Why don't they believe? Because you are not part of my flock. You're not part of my sheep. He says, verse 27, my sheep. You see the distinction he's making? My sheep hear my voice. Not they should hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. That's an affirming, determined statement. I, verse 28, give them. Who's them? The sheep, his people, eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus will save His people. And that leads us to the second part here. Not only will He save them, but... They're His people, and I read some of those verses. But not only will He save His people, but it will be from their sin. It actually saves them from something. Read you one more verse if you want to look over to Hebrews chapter 10. Chapter 10. Look with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. The atonement was not only determined that He will save, it was directed He will save His people. And it was decisive. It was perfect in the atonement. He will save them. He will actually accomplish something. He will save them from their sins. He will save them from their sins. The writer of Hebrews, they were struggling of whether to return back to the old form of Judaism or stay Christian because they were being persecuted. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest under the old system stands daily at his service doing his job, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They were just a memorial. They were just a perpetual reminder that there was one coming who would be the one to atone for sin. Up until that time, it was a continual reminder that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. It didn't accomplish the cleansing that Jesus provided, but it was just a reminder to look to Christ. Old Testament saints look forward to the cross. We look back at the cross, but salvation's always in the cross. All right? That was free. Verse 12. But when Christ... Look at this. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did He do? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. You know, in Eastern culture, to show your bottom of your foot is an offense. You remember when they toppled that uh, statue of Saddam Hussein? And they all had their shoes off and they were beating it. And like, that's crazy. No, that was like an ultimate offense. They, remember the guy that threw his shoe at George Bush? 
I'm like, throwing his shoe? Why don't you throw a baseball? Throw some rock? No, to throw your shoe. I mean, that was, you know, we've got, we've got little gestures that may be kind of up there. I will not illustrate any of those. But you might see somebody on the interstate giving you the sign that you're the number one driver that day on the, on the interstate. So I'll let you leave it at that. But it says the ultimate act of victory and defiance was to take your enemy and put your head upon his, put your foot upon his head. It was not just to crush the head in some physical manner, but it was a highly symbolic form of victory and triumph. And so when it says he's waiting for the day until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus did in one sacrifice what the billions of animals that were slain could never accomplish. That's the reason he could say when he comes, he will save his people and he will save them from their sin. Some people get worked up, and I'm not going to criticize their reason for this, over Christmas trees. And Christmas trees, they're not necessarily any biblical origin, pro or against. They're cultural, something that was developed. Doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. But you know, I can't help as a Christian that when I look at a tree, we might refer to as a Christmas tree, I don't think about elves. I don't think about Will Ferrell. I don't think about all the glitter and glamour of the goosebumps of Christmas and Perry Como and uh, Andy Williams. Some of you don't even know who these people are. That's, that's too bad. That's too bad. The Osmond Family Christmas. How many remember that? You know, watching Peanuts. You, know, you know what our cartoons were? It was Peanuts, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and The Grinch That Stole Christmas. You know, Sherry still watches all three of those every year. You know what? As a Christian, we're talking about the gospel of Christmas. You know what we should see in that tree? We should see that when Jesus was born, there was a tree somewhere that grew as he grew. And one day, that beautiful green tree of life, there was some Roman centurion that had to go out that day and cut the wood that the perfect Lamb of God would be laid upon to be slain for my sin. For my sin. So when you see the tree, let it be a reminder that that beautiful tree that's decorated, as he was adorned as a baby in that manger with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and it was a beautiful setting, let it also be a reminder that that beautiful tree one day become an became an ugly altar that Jesus was laid upon to save his people. I'm his people from their sins. He became that ransom who would pay the price and penalty of sin. Not a ransom to the devil. That's nonsense. He was a ransom that was to God. He was our reconciliation. He was our reconciliation. He was a word that is maybe in some of your Bibles, but we just kind of read over it, but it's a great word. He was our propitiation. Think, what in the world is that? That means Jesus satisfied 
the demands of the law on our behalf. That His death satisfied the requirements that the law demanded so that we could be made free. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He's a substitute. He died in the place of the sinner. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And He is a proof. You want to know how much God loves you? Look to the cross. Oh God, I don't know if you love me. Oh, don't say that. Look to the cross. Look to what Christ endured. What Christ did. By faith. You say, well, who are these people? They're everyone that believes the gospel. That's who the whosoever are. Who are they? Do they got a little mark? No, they don't. In fact, don't even try to divvy up the wheat and the tares because that's the angel's job in the final days. You just proclaim the gospel. You just tell people about Jesus. Let God sort it all out. But know this, that behind the scenes, every person that Jesus died for will be in heaven without exception. Otherwise, something ran amiss. And that verse is not true. He saves us from our sins. I love this. Arthur Pink says the atonement, the atonement was not the cause, but the effect of God's love. John said, in this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, to be the satisfier to God for our sins. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Well, say, there you go, the world. Well, think about it. If, Jesus, if the cross saved the world, let's shut it down. There's no need to preach the gospel. World means that world, because you remember at this time, the message of Messiah was primarily a Jewish message. What was John saying? God so loved Jews, Greeks, Hindus, Egyptians, you name it. God loved everyone in the world without distinction but he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him. That's the, that's the catch. There is a false doctrine that has been working its way through the various Christian church called a universalism. Some of you remember, remember Carlton Pearson. He's gone off the radar into a false doctrine that believes that, you know what, everybody is saved. We just need to tell people what Jesus doesn't matter if they believe or not. It doesn't matter if you remain homosexual. It doesn't matter. Because everyone, including Satan himself, will eventually go to heaven. You think that's crazy. It is crazy because it is not the testimony of Scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Matthew one twenty one, she will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. A while back, came across a story of a wealthy man. He and his son loved to collect art. They were they just loved it. He had the money and means, and they had some of the great paintings from around the world: the Rembrandts, the Raphaels, the Van Goghs. They had it all. And uh, it was about, I think, during the Vietnam era that his son was called up to serve in the military. And the son had not been in the military maybe a little over a year that he lost his life 
saving someone else. Obviously, the father was very grieved and uh, depressed. And a few days before Christmas, somebody knocked on the door of his home, and it was a young soldier standing there. And the young soldier had a package, and the soldier said, I just wanted to come by and introduce myself. I'm the soldier that your son saved. And I know your son talked about how uh, you and he, how much you loved art and how you just, and he said, uh, I painted, he said, it's probably not really great. He said, but I painted a portrait of your son that uh, I wanted to give you. And I think that he would want you to have it. And so the father unwrapped it and said, was just amazed at how this guy captured just the detail of his son in this portrait and the the, the father just kind of cleared whatever paintings were there and he put that above the mantle, kind of the centerpiece. And he was so proud of that portrait of his son. And when people would come in and they would want to see all the other expensive paintings and everything, he would always take them to the picture of his son because he was so proud of his son and they had that relationship. And Well, maybe a year, year and a half, the father died. People who loved the art and that whole art world uh, they were excited because they knew that all these valuable art pieces were going to go on sale. And so there was this auction that was organized, and they were there. And as they came in, right there at the head of where the auctioneer was, was uh, this portrait, that portrait of his son. So the auctioneer began, and he uh, said the auction, according to the will will begin with the son, uh, the portrait of the son. That's what the owner uh, wished, and that's where we're going to begin. They were kind of annoyed. We didn't drive all this way. To, you know, come on, let's get rid of it. Let's get to the good stuff. Bring the Van Goghs, the Raphael. Bring all the, the good stuff out. I uh, said, so no, that's what we have to do. So we began the auction with, uh, who'll bid $200? Nothing. All right, who'll bid $100? Nothing. It went on for a few minutes, and finally somebody in the back said, I'll give $10. And it turned out it was the wealthy man's gardener. He didn't have much money, but he offered $10. And the guy said, well, can we get 20 Nobody would give us 20 And they're like, come on, come on, let's move on. Let's get to the good stuff. And so the man, auctioneer, dropped his gavel, said, sold to the man for $10. And they said, all right, now let's bring out the good stuff. And the auctioneer said, well, that's it. The auction's over. Like, what do you mean the auction's over? He said, well, there was something I couldn't tell you until now. There was, a, there was a secret stipulation to this auction. And the stipulation was that whoever gets the sun gets everything. I don't have to explain to you that when you get Christ, you get everything. He's the greatest gift. Don't miss Jesus. Now, tomorrow, next year, don't miss Christ. We need to tell people, if we believe this, if we believe that's true, we shouldn't say, oh, okay, I just go lay on the couch and he's going to save everybody. No. He's ordained the end product, but he's also ordained the process, and that's to go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to our feet.